Hello, and welcome to the Civil Law Podcast from Pump Court Chambers. I'm Tim Salisbury, and today I'm very pleased to welcome my colleague Antonia Ford to the podcast. Antonia is one of our civil specialists at Pump Court Chambers, with particular expertise in the fields of personal injury, credit hire, and civil fraud. She's also the head of Chambers' personal injury team and the architect of our free new practitioner series of webinars aimed at civil practitioners of up to around three years qualification, both series of which are available at pumpcourtchambers.com. Antonia joined Pump Court following a distinguished career as a solicitor, qualifying in 2002 before transferring and being called to the bar in 2017. During her time as a solicitor, she was head of fraud at Clyde & Co., and a partner within the claims validation team at DAC Beechcroft. In addition to her busy court and advisory practice, Antonia is a qualified mediator, so extremely well-placed to talk about today's topic of recent developments in mediation in the civil jurisdiction. So Antonia, for anybody unfamiliar with mediation, what is it? Thank you for having me uh, today, Tim. In simple terms, mediation is a dispute or conflict resolution process which utilises a third party, an independent third party, to see an end to the conflict that exists. But it's a bit more than that. It's a flexible and confidential process which helps people to talk through the issues in dispute, to negotiate settlement and come to some form of mutual agreement to resolve a dispute which exists. And it's it's fair to say it's not a private court, is it? Uh, no, not at all. Um, mediation is is not binding until an agreement, a, a settlement agreement is signed. But it's a process that has the ability to take some of the heat out of litigation using an independent third party to help those in dispute with each other navigate what can be quite a, a contentious and emotional process. What would you say are the pros and cons of parties using mediation? There are a number of pros and cons. It's not it's not the answer for everybody. In terms of pros, one of the, the primary benefits of mediation is it allows parties to keep control over the process and outcome of a case, whereas litigation effectively hands control of the outcome to a judge who will look at the evidence and hand down a judgment. And that control, that retaining of control can be very important to people who feel they've been wronged, uh, whatever side of, of the dispute they sit. It can also be a quicker or, and cheaper route to uh, resolving it a dispute, uh, simply because uh, the process, it, it, if settlement is achieved, it's sorted and done and dusted within a, within a much shorter period. You're not at the hands of the court system for a, a timetable to be set. You're not uh, using expensive court time and expensive solicitors for a protracted dispute, which may not end up with a result that you're happy with. It also allows resolution of a dispute at more arm's length in a situation which might be charged and, and emotive because the communication is done between with, by a third party, whereas in a court, the communication, whilst it's done to the judge, it's all done in the same room 
with the parties next to each other. And that, and that can cause its own problems. Often it preserves relationships. What I mean by that is where the relationship still exists. Think about an employment liability case where the claimant is still an employee and a, a dispute arises. Sometimes mediation can preserve that relationship uh, because you're able to uh, reach compromise without many of the feelings and thoughts being thrown in people's faces effectively because you're dealing with it at arm's length. And so that, depending on the nature of the dispute, that can be a really important benefit to mediation. Are there any um, negatives that you come across typically? Yes. I mean, by the very nature of mediation, it's a process of compromise. And what that in reality means is that there's a potential for both parties to be unhappy with with the result. Both parties are going to have to move away from what they perceive to be their optimum position in the litigation. And so that can cause some perceptual problems with parties who feel that they have a strong case or are closed to the idea of compromise. And so where you're in a position where a party holds an intractable position on the issues in dispute, on the prospects of success, or on the value of a claim, then mediation is unlikely to be successful. Mediation is also not binding until the compromise agreement is signed. So there's a, a real possibility that you could go to the costs and incur the time in mediation without achieving any resolution at all, and that the matter would still then proceed through the the litigation process to a trial in any event. And so the benefits and the reward can not be what people hope for. I mean, in terms of costs of mediation, I think one of the things that parties, even when mediation is unsuccessful, sometimes find more palatable is that, as you say, it's, it's more predictable you you book your mediator for a day you know how much you're going to pay your solicitors and or barristers and if you're unsuccessful you shoulder your own costs and usually half of the mediation fee uh, so you know going into it the maximum that it's going to cost you yeah i mean mediate the costs of mediation will depend on on the nature of the case being mediated mm. it depends on the issues it depends on the value and the complexity it also depends on which mediator you choose and how experienced they are but you're right generally the costs of mediation are shared 50 50 between the parties and of course you can always try and include those costs in any agreement that the mediation you might reach at mediation it just depends on what the parties are willing to agree and and reach agreement on You've got to be careful, of course, that there is an air of need to compromise. So if you're too intractable about the mediation costs, that could derail the entire mediation, when in reality, the desire to mediate is about the primary dispute, not about the costs flowing from mediation. And in terms of the practicalities about mediation, it's right to say that it can be in person or or remote. Do, Do you find any difference between those two uh, for not in terms of how often you reach you you achieve success 
I think practitioners have found that in-person hearings and remote hearings are just as successful as uh, as each other. Where you can find uh, a difference is in how people view the importance and formality of the process. Um, in the same way as remote court hearings, people can feel that they're not as formal uh, as in-person hearings and are not as affected by the gravitas uh, that being in a court environment has them. The same applies to mediation. Now, that can be a pro or a con. For some people, the process of mediation, the in-person mediation, can be too much for them if the subject matter is particularly emotional or, or concerning or, or they have particular concerns about the other party in mediation. Of course, it's set up so that you don't have to see the other party face to face if you don't want to. There is protection in that regard. But the whole process can be difficult for some people. The flip of that is that for some people it can crystallise their mind. It makes them understand that this dispute is real. It's not going to go away unless there is a compromise or a court judgment. And that alone can encourage people to manage their expectations and, and uh, approach mediation or settlement in good faith. So it can be a good thing and a bad thing. So if we think about some parties going to mediation or considering it, are there any consequences for parties uh, if they don't engage with mediation or, for example, any other form of alternative dispute resolution? As it stands at the moment, the, the, the need to mediate, or more accurately, to attempt to mediate, it, it's not automatically compulsory within the CPR. The court is simply charged with encouraging parties to use alternative dispute resolution uh, within the duties imposed under the overriding objective. Similarly, the pre-action protocols do not make mediation mandatory either. In fact, Rule 9.13 of the Personal Injury Protocol expressly states that it's not mandatory. It says that it expressly recognises that no party can or should be forced to mediate or enter into any form of ADR. What it does say is that if you unreasonably refuse to mediate, the court can uh, bear that in mind when it's deciding on who should pay costs of a court proceeding. And effectively, the court, the right for a court to do that is under the standard cost rules uh, of CPR 44.3.4, which simply says that the court can take into account the conduct of a party when it decides who should pay whom's costs. And effectively, what that's saying is, is the unreasonable refusal is a point of conduct that the court will consider. Of course, in the typical style of procedure, there's no definition of what unreasonable refusal is within yeah, the that rules. Was that was going to be my uh, next question. <laughs> uh, exactly. In fact, the, the rules say basically it's the nature of the case, the costs of mediation, uh, the costs that were incurred after the refusal uh, to mediate and whether the mediation was likely to achieve a result in a particular case 
will play on the court's mind when deciding whether a refusal has been itself unreasonable. But of course, you won't know that until the end of a case. You won't know that likely until trial has concluded and costs are being considered. So it's really important that you weigh up all of the issues before you make a decision to refuse to mediate, because there could be a significant sting in the tail if a court decides that that refusal has been unreasonable. So presumably it's sensible for any anyone advising parties to litigation where mediation might be suitable to, to sit, sit down with their clients and go through the factors for and against it. Definitely, definitely. Although it, it's worth highlighting that there's a potential disproportionate effect on claimants in personal injury cases, because, the, of course, the defendants in a Cox protected case is already bearing their own costs in the case because they, they, they can't enforce a cost order in a personal injury Cox protected case. And so in some respects, the defendant has nothing to lose either way. They have nothing to lose in forcing a matter into a mediation process and nothing to lose by refusing so mediation and and the the cost implications have the potential to affect claimants far more than defendants in a personal injury case so i understand that there's been some recent authority in relation to uh, the court's powers as to ordering parties to consider mediation is that right uh, yes before we talk about that case in particular, I think it's worth just going back through a bit of history of, of mediation, because I think it feeds into why this case has come up uh, now. And mediation has been a hot topic for decades. The first mediation uh, scheme was pioneered in the central London County Court in 1996. But despite this, and despite the cost implications that we've talked about, and despite the benefits of mediation, it, in reality, it's failed to gain any traction in personal injury cases and certain types of civil claims. Of course, mediation's only one type of dispute resolution. There are other methods which seem to have had slightly better use in personal injury cases, such as joint settlement meetings or pre-trial settlement hearings. But even those have seen limited use, unless it's anything other than a higher value multi-track case. And it, even in areas where they have a formal mediation uh, scheme in place, only a fraction of disputes are at the moment are ever resolved by alternative methods. For example, only about 7% of clinical negligence claims resolved by, via the NHS complaints process. What we've seen, however, is since COVID, we've seen an increase in the interest in mediation. And the issue has found its way back onto both the political and the judicial docket, so that we're starting to see discussions about mandatory mediation and about the court's powers in terms of mediation and the government's desire to reduce litigation coming back onto the uh, onto the discussion forums uh, and, um, and and being considered more uh, by uh, the courts and uh, uh, political powers. So where 
the courts enter in is is the case of Churchill versus Merthyr Tydfil County Borough Council. And what happened in that case is the Court of Appeal specifically addressed the questions whether the court could lawfully order a, a party in court proceedings to engage in non-court based dispute resolution and in what circumstances they should do so. Prior to Churchill, the leading case had been a case called Halsey versus Milton Keynes General NHS Trust. And in that case, what the judgment said was that to oblige an unwilling party into mediation would be to impose an unreasonable obstacle to their right to court. And effectively, what it was saying was you, you can't force somebody into mediation. They have an absolute right to litigate if they uh, so wish. And in Churchill, at first instance, what the judge in that case said was that he's bound by the Halsey case. He's bound by that judgment that if a party doesn't want to mediate, they shouldn't be forced to. In Churchill, what had happened, the facts of the case are that it was a, a not-weed case. So Mr Churchill was claiming that not-weed from the council's land was causing damage to his uh, property and nuisance uh, and affecting his enjoyment of his home. And he commenced litigation uh, for damages. The council said, why haven't you used our defined commercial disputes resolution process. In fact, it wasn't a mediation process as much as an alternative dispute resolution process. And if you issue proceedings, we are going to apply for a stay. And that's exactly what they did. They applied for a stay and said the claimant should be forced to use it. As I said, at first instance, the judge said, no, I can't do that. I don't have the power to do that because of the case of Halsey and because of the fact that everyone has the right to their day in court, sort of, I'm paraphrasing slightly. What the Court of Appeal did in, in partially approving the appeal is they said basically, first off, that Halsey wasn't binding precedent on the lower courts. What it said was that that paragraph that I've just read to you about obliging an unwilling party into mediation didn't form the basis of the judge's decision not to force mediation and therefore the the thought process behind it wasn't binding what they then went on to say was yes the court absolutely has a right to stay a case for any reason because they can just adjourn it and yes they absolutely have the right to make an order for non-court-based dispute resolution. And importantly, what they went on to say, or, or to justify that decision, in saying that it didn't impact a claimant's right to a judicial hearing, because of course, the claimant, the mediation could fail and the claimant could go on to a trial. And so the desire for uh, alternative dispute resolution didn't affect the claimant's right to judicial process. What's interesting in that case is that they declined, the Court of Appeal declined to actually 
stay the case and force mediation on the facts of that particular case. And so the appeal was only partially successful. So it didn't change the outcome of the case at all. They also chose not to provide any guidance on when a court should exercise the discretion to order mediation, indicating that it turns entirely on the facts of facts of the case. I mean, I think that, that has to be right, doesn't it, really? Absolutely, because so much feeds into whether mediation is appropriate. And it goes back to the same considerations that the courts were already making in terms of the cost sanctions. So would mediation have been successful? Is Are the costs disproportionate? What costs have been incurred as a consequence of the refusal, et cetera? Um, so they're already considering those things. What the judgment doesn't do, of course, is make mediation binding, nor does it stop a party approaching mediation in, in bad faith. And of course, a court will find it difficult to adjudicate on whether a party approaches mediation in good or bad faith, because the contents of any mediation is confidential. Mm. I, I think I think it's very it's very interesting that, that this that this has been considered by the Court of Appeal. I, I don't think it changes things greatly. It's one of those sort of clarificatory judgments, really. Would you agree? Um, in some respects, I do. I, I agree with you. But what it does do is it brings mediation and the need to really consider mediation and alternative methods to the forefront of a litigator's consideration when they're looking at new cases. They need to have, as part of their checklist, when they're deciding how to progress a case, is this right for mediation? Should we be mediating first? Because A, the cost sanctions might bite, and B, the court could turn around and force you to do it anyway, by which point you've already incurred quite a sizable amount of cost, which you may or may not ever recover, Mm -hmm. depending on how successful uh, the mediation is and and what risk factors are taken into account in any settlement. So I think what it does really is is, is it shows that mediation is a hot topic. And when you look at the, the judgment in Churchill and you see how many different parties were interested interveners in the judgment. And there's a raft of them. I think there's something like eight or nine. Yes, it's uh, the Law Society, the Bar Council, the Civil Mediation Council, the Centre for Effective Dispute Resolution, the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, Housing Law Practitioners Association, the Social Housing Law Association, uh, all intervened. Exactly. And so when you, when you see that that the number of people who've intervened, you can see how This isn't a topic, despite the fact it's been around since 1996 and has been such a slow growing topic. It now shows us this is a topic which isn't going away. The Court of Appeal have got on the bandwagon. The political parties are on the bandwagon. We've got lots of different interested parties saying we need to get this right. And so it's something that practitioners really need to start considering in much more depth than perhaps they have been previously. And I, I can certainly foresee in uh, first instance cases in the county court that it would be quite tempting to a number of district judges where they think that cases haven't necessarily had the, the level of scrutiny they perhaps would have liked or the parties haven't necessarily engaged with the issues as they would have liked 
to be told that they need to go off and engage in mediation, especially Definitely. in the context of a pack list and trial dates far, far in the future in any event. Absolutely. And we've already seen it to a certain extent where many circuits are now dispensing with the pre-trial reviews, which are a procedural hearing in nature and replacing them with settlement hearings, which are designed to focus on avoiding the need for trial. The focus has, has changed in many courts so that the directions are focused on settlement and not on procedural management. Although at the moment that that tends to be very area to area, doesn't it? Very much so. Very yeah. much so. It's a bit hit and miss depending on where you issue your case or where the case proceeds. I can see that we're going to have guidance from on high that courts should be focusing in that direction much more. Mm. So are there any cases where you can foresee there being particular difficulties in the civil jurisdiction post-Churchill? I think in cases where there is either fraud or fundamental dishonesty, they are going to be cases which pose the parties and the courts a unique problem because it's difficult to see in many cases, how the parties can come to the mediation table in good faith, where either one party is a, a fraudulent party or one party believes the other party to be fraudulent. Because by their very nature, they're coming from a position of um, dishonesty in some respect. I think what's going to be interesting is how defendants use mediation in such cases they have the ability to use it more as a weapon in some respect it's a it's a need it's a litigation tactic and they could turn around and say well we think this case is a dishonest case and so we do not want to go to the tape mediation tape they could force a matter into mediation as a method of fishing for information. Now, obviously, information in mediation is confidential and nobody can use it in the litigation, except in very small circumstances. But that doesn't stop a party using information to then inform their investigations when the mediation fails. And so they could take information learnt in the mediation, go off and do further investigations to evidence or, or find that information from areas that they can rely. They could use it to increase costs. You have a claimant who, who a defendant thinks is fraudulent and you want to put maximum pressure on them uh, by increasing costs. The flip, of course, is that unless there is a judgment in a, in a personal injury case, unless there is a judgment, a finding of fundamental dishonesty, the claimant is quacks protected in terms of their costs. So a defendant may think that mediation is a bad thing in a strong fundamental dishonesty case because they want the court to make the judgment. They want uh, the shield, the quacks protection shield to fall 
and they want an order, a cost order they can enforce against a claimant. So it's really difficult to know at this stage exactly how mediation is going to affect cases where fundamental dishonesty and fraud is um, is an issue. Mm -hmm. I think we need to watch this space, but it's certainly an interesting area to, to keep an eye on. And presumably it will also have an impact on what we see in on the face of pleadings. So, for example, I, I can certainly imagine that a case where fraud has been pleaded, that no court is going to say this is a suitable case for mediation. And it's unlikely, I think, that there are proceedings will be stayed for the parties to engage in mediation. By I think order. so. Yeah. I, I mean, I, fundamental I, dishonesty is quite interesting, though, as well, isn't it? Because cases, when they are issued, don't necessarily have to state on their face that fundamental dishonesty is an issue. So you could go off, have your mediation as a fishing expedition, as you say. But equally, if the defendant doesn't want to go to mediation and risk incurring further costs at their end, which they'll never be able to recover if they're not successful in establishing fundamental dishonesty, uh, they, they they may take a different view as to whether whether matters need to be set out either in correspondence or, or in pleadings at a much earlier stage than than typically we, we see. I, yeah, I think you're right. And I think it'll become much more of a tactical consideration for defendants in fundamental dishonesty cases. Because, of course, yes, you're right. They don't have to plead fundamental dishonesty to rely on it. But the case of mustard versus flowers makes it clear that if you want to raise fundamental dishonesty, if you want to rely on it, if you formulated the view before trial that it is a fundamental dishonesty case, you need to make sure that the claimant at least understands that that is a likely allegation. You can't ambush them at trial with something that you could have reasonably known or reasonably put to them earlier. And so what you could find is that people are suggesting early mediation in fundamental dishonesty cases where they haven't uh, they're not in a position where they have to at least put the claimant on notice that is their concern so that they come to the table they look as if they're coming to the table clean and can get some information which may or may not help it's difficult to know whether that is that is a possibility Yes, I mean, and and I think in Churchill, in the case in Churchill, although although it's not not personal injury, that was the the argument for the stay took place. I think reasonably early on it, in the proceedings. It, it yes, it was so it was raised pre litigation uh, because the defendant said if you issue that they received a a letter before action from the claimant saying that proceedings would be issued. And the defendant immediately raised the issue, well, why haven't you used our complaints process? And if you issue proceedings, we'll apply for a stay. And then immediately on receipt, pretty much immediately on receipt of the defence, the the defendants made their application to stay the proceedings and have the case sent back for alternative dispute resolution. So it was really early in the process. Great stuff. Well, look, thank you very much, Antonia. It's been uh, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Obviously, all your details are on our website. Um, and in the show notes, we'll make sure that there is a link to the case of Churchill. Uh, for those of you that like a neutral citation, the case is Churchill and Mother Tidful County Borough Council, 2023 EWCA Civ 1416. And we'll also include in our show notes a link to our Pump Court New Practitioners series, 
um, which I would uh, recommend anybody just starting out go and have a look at. It's, it's a great resource, uh, which is something that I know Antonia has been working hard to put together for your enjoyment. Um, so again, thank you very much, Antonia. Thank you for joining thank you for us. Having and we me. hope to welcome you back soon. Thank you for having me.